Welcome to the Northern Business Podcast. Each week we're talking to people active in business and the economy about the big issues driving growth in the north of England. We're sponsored by Virtue Motors, one of the UK's largest motor retailers. Check out its website at virtuemotors.com. I'm Graham Lobb, owner of Recognition PR, one of the longest established PR firms in the north of England. We help scores of businesses promote their products and services, some are featured on this podcast. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. In the studio today, we've got Carl Pemberton, Managing Director of Active Chartered Financial Planners, who are based in Stockton-on-Tees, and down the line, Mushan Gavidon, who's the winner of the Series 14 of The Apprentice, but more importantly for our purposes today, CEO of Sean Marie, a brilliant online business from which you can buy all sorts of leisure and swimwear. More about that in a minute. And later, my colleague Josh Habakin will be talking to business sales and finance brokers, Bolton Base, Bolton Smythe. So welcome, everyone. Hello, Sean. Nice to see you down there. You're coming from Leeds. Is that right? I am. Yeah, I'm from Leeds, as nice. you can probably tell from this accent. <laughs> well, we all saw your accent on The Apprentice and we all were cheering from you somewhere from the north of England. So we will hear more about that in a minute. But let's first of all check in with Carl. Carl, the economy. Look, I've got a newspaper here. Daily Mail, front page of the Daily Mail, what's it say? It talks about mortgage rates, record demand for 35-year mortgages. Um, at, at first look, uh, if you were to read the mainstream media that you see, the economy's not doing too good. But then you look at some of the international reports, the OECD and uh, also um, the IMF, and they're saying that Britain's economy's growing. On the ground, when you're advising people with their own money, what's your take on where the economy is now? I think it's hard to escape the fact that we're in a difficult time. Um, there isn't much positive news, as, as you alluded to. And I think most people in society are feeling it in, in some way, shape or form. Um, the inflation figures that came out a few weeks ago showed, I think it dropped to about 8.7. That hopefully will keep trickling down through the coming months. Um, I think the real shock, as as you alluded to on the front of the newspaper there, is with regards to mortgage rates. I think we haven't really felt the shock of mortgage rate increases yet. Um, a stat that I saw, I'm pretty sure it was earlier this week, says in the last quarter of this year, 1.5 million mortgage deals are going to expire, people on fixed rates. That's going to be the big chunk of people that are going to see the big uplifts in their rates. So, yes, the news isn't great. It could obviously be far better. I think if inflation is much lower by the end of the year, that will help cushion the blow. Uh, but certainly uh, it is a, a worry. If you've got a mortgage and you've got a fixed rate at the moment, it is quite nervous times because that was probably taken when times were totally different to what they are now. Inflation is the driver of government policy. And I should imagine if you're advising people about where their money goes, inflation is the driver of their decisions too. Yeah, we've not really had pressures like this for probably 10, 15 years. We've lived in a, I'll go as far as saying we've probably lived in a bit of a bubble where inflation has been kept low. Uh, interest rates have been kept low for certainly 10 plus years. And we've probably got a, a generation of people who've lived in a time when they've not really felt inflation. We've uh, lived in a time when Things are being made very cheaply, let's say, over in the Far East. And we've been enjoying the benefits of technological advancements, which means that TV that was £1,000 10 years ago, we can now buy it at £300 in a centre aisle at a, at a supermarket. The, you know, that, that reduction in inflation of, in terms of what things have cost, we've all benefited from that. 
we're actually just returning to norm if you zoom out 40 50 years and see what inflation looked like over the long term we are probably just returning to normal times as horrible as it feels to be within it one of the big drivers of inflation was the oil price and the oil price now just look at my note is around 77 dollars a barrel give or take a dollar and it was driven up a little bit this week because the saudis decided to stop pumping so much oil they've decided they're going to have a million barrels of oil fewer onto the market in the next uh, few years. Now, that market manipulation for a sovereign wealth fund in Saudi Arabia does have a ripple effect, doesn't it, if the oil price isn't kept low? It does. And, that, and again, it impacts us all in terms of whether you're filling your cars up at the, at the pumps or whether it's your oil and gas prices to heat your homes. I think we probably are all desperate for a bit of a let-off uh, it's nice when you fill the car up and it isn't going into three figures. Um, it is nice when, you know, we're coming into the summer months and hopefully you're, you're, um, the clock to show how much you're, you're using at home in terms of your meters uh, is coming down. Now we're all switching our heating off, hopefully. I think we're, we're all due a bit of a reprieve. So anything that keeps them down for me personally is a good thing and taking mm -hmm. that pressure off um, the cost of living side of things. I get why OPEC would want to prop it up because it, it, it makes them um, feel more relevant. I think certainly there are other nations and, uh, and, and institutions around the world which are now obviously selling oil, uh, which obviously will remain nameless, but they're, they're obvious who they are, who are obviously challenging the norm of OPEC and the norm yeah, of consumers. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point because OPEC pumps 40% of the world's oil. Yep. Saudi cut their barrel by about 10%. And yet the actual oil price went up by just over 2%. So it didn't have as big an effect of serious. It goes up, but it didn't have as big as people think. Now, you and I are in business as well. You, you advise on the economy. You advise things. But what about in running your business? I suppose I'm looking for productivity. Productivity, productivity, productivity. That's the, the mantra of people in business in these times. It is. And again, it's hard, isn't it? And, and Sean will probably allude to it in a bit as well. I think... Costs have clearly gone up significantly. There's, there's no getting away from that. Employing people has gone up significantly. And as as much as it sticks in the throat sometimes to, to be paying people a significant uplift, morally it's the right thing to do for, for some people. Certainly if you've got great staff, you want to hang on to them and look after them and do things uh, that are going to protect the longevity of your own business. It's when things uh, uh, go up exceptionally that are out with that like the gas and electric prices for a business ours has gone up from nine to twenty nine thousand pounds you know that's almost a full member of staff yeah. in terms of what it's gone up in a year there's all those which is for a modern office building basically. yeah um and you know when all those ancillary things around it go up that's then quite hard i, I do think we need to be looking at technological ad advancements and how we can be more productive how can we create what we create more efficiently to counter those increases in cost. That's that's the way we've got to look at it moving forward. Well, let's talk to, to Sean Gabardon now. Now, Sean, uh, you won The Apprentice. You obviously got a great deal of skill. We saw you on The Apprentice, everyone cheering you on. But now you are running a business, and this business that has started selling swimwear, now loungewear, uh, it's doing it in different ways, isn't it? And clearly you've managed to harness some productivity gains that deliver for your customers. Definitely. You know, it, it's funny, actually, because off the back of The Apprentice, I actually... I sort of run multiple businesses, so you know it's it's not purely fashion either. 
But um, one of the biggest things, and I guess to kind of add on to what you guys are discussing, obviously since COVID, even though we hate talking about COVID because we want to move on from it now, but you know, that whole working from home mentality, if it's possible to do as, as, as a business, you know, that's kind of been great for us to leverage and looking at trying to do everything as a work from home and potentially not needing office space at all or just having hubs where we can go if we need to have catch-ups and meetings. But that's been a really kind of great way of, or, you know, one of the key things that for me has helped to kind of get through a lot of the times. Um, but, you know, inflation generally is difficult. It's from a business perspective, it's looking at your expenses, it's looking at where you can save, you know, how you can keep things afloat after getting through COVID. You know, it's kind of just been non-stop, I guess, for the last couple of years, and um, it's a difficult time. Well, let's talk about how you've coped with it. First of all, you've got this uh, brilliant website. Uh, it's called seanmarie.com. That's where I saw the core uh, receptacle for all your products. Um, but you also sell through other channels first uh, as well. So which is the, the most successful ch sales channel you've got? Your own website or using others like ASOS, ASDA and so on? Definitely online, um, especially from a fashion perspective. You know, margin-wise, um, everything makes much more sense in some respects online than through our own website. Um, working with retail is great for awareness um, to get our products into retail in general, you know, it's it's great to kind of have that connection and to, to build out hopefully new followings from that. But from, a, a, I guess, from a, a monetary and a profits perspective, online is definitely the, the best and biggest channel for us and the, the channel that we really want to push more um, more than anything. And having it where, you know, you kind of have your core ranges online on your, on your site available, maybe the odd range across retail that you can't get on the website, but you keep your core range to you know, to the website, really. We'll talk about the brand in a minute, but behind the brand is obviously a large logistical operation. If I order a new puffer jacket or if someone orders a swimsuit or a bit of loungewear, they want to have it now, don't they? And they want to be able to return it if it goes wrong uh, or it's not the right size. So how have you built your logistics operation to back up the brand you've built? Well, the truth is nowadays with fashion specifically, it's so competitive. And as you say, everybody wants something yesterday. You know, you can't be three, four days anymore. You have to be able to do next day. So to build the infrastructure, to be able to offer that kind of product, you know, and one of the key things for us pre The Apprentice, you know, we were small scale. Everything was produced in house. I started out making everything myself. So then to go on to being in retailers, then having such a popular big online channel, you know, you have to kind of build out that operation and have the warehousing, whether you have it local to you or across the UK or internationally, so you can serve all of these areas as quickly and efficiently as possible. Um, so it's kind of been, been adapting to every situation, you know, because then COVID comes, hits, and you have to change this strategy that you kind of built up to facilitate getting through that and surviving in some sense. But, um, yeah, it's just been... It's just been growing with the business, I guess, and working out the best kind of, of way of structuring that and, you know, being able to get the most out of it. And at the end of the day, giving the customer, you know, the fastest turnaround possible um, and being able to compete with the big dogs. And and so you've got at the top of all this is the brand, Jean-Marie, this brand of clothing that you, you've uh, pushed into the market so successfully. Um, and then there's the logistics to deliver it. And all of these partners that you're contracting with have got their brand in your hands how do you make sure that because they are your representatives aren't they how do you make sure that they're looking after your brand 
I think that's why with retail it's um it's interesting because it, like you say you know they're representing your brand and they're showcasing it so especially for us if we're in somewhere like Asda you know Georgia Asda it's making sure that every as soon as the customer sees who we are and sees the product that it represents us we're an online brand you know so having a store presence was very much about making sure that kind of ethos that we've built online is recreated in physical form so you, you know and then obviously you have your general online brand uh, retailers too like your ASOS and stuff so it's just about communication really and being able to provide them with everything that they need to to successfully I guess integrate your brand and make it you know as sellable as possible to the consumer. Now let's talk about your brand I spent a long time this afternoon looking at the products and also looking at how you market them using social media and influencers. Uh, you've got people like Molly May, uh, Perry Edwards, uh, Mara Higgins, uh, Addison Ray. Not people that Carl and I will instantly recognise, but I, I've seen them. Love, Love Island. You might. <laughs> you might. So, but you've obviously gone to market to, to get the right people for the right product for the right place. How have you interacted with them? What are they doing for you? And how does the partnership with these influencers work? Influencer is such an interesting, you know, kind of area of marketing and one that I think people can be quite scared of because if you get it wrong, you can get it really wrong. Um, You know, we, during COVID, we were predominantly swimwear. We then moved into loungewear pretty much through COVID as a a strategy really to help us get through because it was a really tough time for, as you can imagine, the swimwear industry. Um, But to move into loungewear, interestingly enough, actually opened up much more opportunity we had more interest from retailers we had these influencers then who would wear product you know we tried to push uh swimwear onto as many influencers as possible but loungewear just opened us up allowed us to work with people like molly mays um maura higgins and whatnot but the way we you know we kind of leveraged the fact that i what i believe in the product you know it, it's designed by me so i'm like i believe in it it's good quality it's not just me, you know, it's not a fast fashion brand where we're just churning out designs every day. Um, so when it came to influencer, I'm like, I really want them to wear it because they actually like it. You know, I don't want to have to pay them and I don't want it to be where they feel forced into wearing it. So we did a lot of kind of gifting opportunities. We didn't necessarily pay. We just sent them out boxes of products that we made it look amazing, you know, and we really t- tried to do it the way that every brand owner would like it to be you know and quite organically in a sense and we've had lots of luck in that you know you can get rates for people and the rates can be so high that you're like i don't know if this is worth the risk and we've tried before and it's failed it's not worked out but then you do get the odd gem where you like you know molly may's got something like six million followers uh we sent her a box of goodies she wore one of our gilets it was the best selling product we'd ever had off the back of that so, you know, you can't, when you get it right, you can get it really right. I, mean, I, I you can also get it really wrong. You talk about paying, and obviously, to a certain extent, if Molly May, for argument's sake, that I don't know the relationship we've got with her, but if you have a relationship within the longer term, does involve compensating her for her efforts, that does seem fair, albeit that she should be coming to it because she believes in the quality first. Is, is that how you'd assess how you... I mean, you know what, just... Top line with influencer, girls charge rates that technically uh, it should align to what they are worth in a sense. So what they can drive in, in terms of conversion or sales. So the hard part is working out if they actually do can do that before mm-hmm. you have to spend that much money in a sense. So it's usually 
you know, you would find as long as you're working with the right people who've got a good reputation, who, whether it's through influencer management teams or through their own management, you can trust that what they are charging anyway, aside from the relationship you've built, that they can actually generate you a profit on that, then it's worth, it's worth doing. But 90% of the time, it's very hard to assess that. You kind of have to go in blind a little bit. You can check engagement rates and other things, but Sometimes you have to take the plunge and say, right, we're just going to do it. So from my side and, you know, being being an Auburner and being how I am, I'm like, I'm not just going to start risking loads of money on these, you know, people if I'm not sure. So I'll always try and gift, you know, and gifting doesn't mean anything. They don't have to do anything with products. It mm. just means that they get a piece. Right. And, you know, you like to hope that they're going to like it and they might end up wearing it and doing something with it. And then you can kind of gauge the performance and you know then work on a collaboration properly with them oh, i know that you're also using some of the expertise you've built up in the last five years on this uh, by advising other firms aren't you you've got an agency that you're building tell us about that uh yeah so do you know what i've spent 10 years i'd say now in business and it with the hurdles you know the problems the trying things that don't work and then they might do if you try it a different way i've done everything pretty much end to end and i'm i'm you know for the past sort of year, I've been very big on trying to help give that knowledge to other companies and hand over some of the key contacts either I've built up over the time or my, you know, I've kind of built out an agency now who can really help to implement strategies. So alongside me and building out, you know, looking at what they're currently doing, building out a bit more of a, of a structured plan and saying, look, you're not, influ you're not using influencers, you're not looking at your marketing overall, you're not using social media or you're not using it very well you know, here's what you should be doing and my team can actually implement that for you because a lot of the time I'll find, you know, you can consult and give advice and say, well, we, you should be doing this, you need to improve your website, you need to, but they haven't actually got the infrastructure or the team to, yeah. to get things in motion, you know? So from my side, I'm like, if I can kind of offer the full thing, hopefully that will just benefit everybody and, you know, they're not. there's so many agencies now that, can promise the world and not necessarily fulfill it. And I'm sick of it, if I'm honest. I'm like, I want to be able to actually bloody help people. I tell you what, I'm going to be talking to Sean off this camera to, so she can talk with me in recognition, because I think there's a lot in what you've said and and not every agency can do everything. You've got a little niche. Do you think Carl and I could ever influence? Because we, we're not going to wear the beautiful things that you have, but I suppose it's horses for courses, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, we can chat off camera. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> All right, just one last thing on social media. Social media platforms vary all the time. Uh, in America, TikTok is in the middle of a huge controversy because it's Chinese-owned. Some states have banned it. Uh, Twitter itself is going through different controversies every day. Its audience is down in some respects in different different uh, different uh, uh, markets. Uh, in, in Instagram is up there. Facebook's up and down. Where do you see the landscape of the different social platforms at the moment? I think exactly like you say, it's 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 such a tricky platform because, you know, you have I know we're talking a lot about influencers, but you have influencers who whose whole careers are built around social media, right? And it's such a tricky one because I know like for example when you're doing paid ads on social media, you know, you can have an iOS update that just ruins the whole infrastructure that you've spent years building and that has worked really well and in a day you're like okay this is all going to need to change because it's no longer going to be beneficial or work so it's really hard to find a balance and work out you know you don't want to have all your eggs in one basket where you're like 
this social strategy is working really well, but as soon as this stops working, if for whatever reason, Instagram closed down tomorrow, you know, you kind of have to have your backups. And that's what's tricky about, I mean, that's business in general, in some respects. I think that's one thing COVID has taught a lot of people is you have to have, you can't have all your eggs in one basket because you just don't know what's around the corner. But I very much feel the same way. But what I would say about socials is aligned to obviously, you know, your different types of accounts, different types of ways of monetizing them. There's always new things coming around as well. TikTok is not particularly new, but it's a new sort of route to monetize, I guess. And that's massive now in the UK and came from China. So it's like there's so much that you can do on TikTok that you kind of maybe can't do with Instagram and Facebook that you need to jump straight onto any of these new channels, jump onto the hypes, utilize them before they're too big to use organically. Yeah. You know, I think now with Instagrams and stuff, you have you have to spend money to make money on there. Whereas TikTok is still a bit more open to trends. You know, you could be a nobody, jump on a trend, blow up overnight and, yeah. you know, have that kind of viral sensation. And things like this podcast is on different platforms. It's about your products being on different. We're on a video on LinkedIn and on YouTube. We're audio on Apple and, and Spotify and even on Facebook for that matter. Yeah. And that's, you know, content itself is a whole other kind of conversation. And that's the biggest thing, you know, for me is as long as you've, you, you've got key content that you can repurpose across your social platforms, you know, they don't always all work the same on different platforms. But as long as you're building content regularly and it's the same with the fashion industry, you know, but most industries now, people want to visually see what you're selling or want to buy into that. You know, and you need to have fresh content constantly. And that's like, before, I always say if I'm working with people, I'm like, before we do anything social-wise, we need to improve your content. Then we build out a strategy and then we start to implement it. So, yeah, you know, having different platforms, using them all is key. Absolutely. All right, let's turn back to Carl. Marvellous to hear, Sean. She's saying things that I think you and I agree with. You were in financial services and you're using social as well, but not in the same way, obviously. Yeah, I think, again, I was his more, well... Similar to Sean, I was his brand awareness, really. Again, it's if you can um, control the narrative of what people think about you and perceive about you, uh, you know, social media is a fantastic uh, tool to use because, again, traditionally our industry is quite mundane, quite boring. We have to differentiate ourselves and change people's perceptions of, of what we do on a daily basis. And Sean's based a business here in the north of England. That's important because we need more businesses. We have fewer businesses per 10,000 population in the north than they do in the south. So we need more like you, Sean. And the fact that you've got more than one business, that's even better. Yeah, no, 100%. I think, um, I think it's great, you know, to be able to kind of share my story as well. And I usually share my full story of setting up small scale and getting to where I've got. But I think sometimes it's nice, especially up in the north, for people to who can relate maybe to my journey or to my story, my beginnings, and see that it is possible, you know, because when I was younger, I was very much told you have to be down south. That's where you can build business and that's where you can be successful. But social media, especially now, you know, it, it opens up so many doors that it, it's a different world we live in. You know, it's you don't have to be anywhere. You can be sat on the beach, you know, as long as you've got the, the, the foundation and you know what you want to do, like, Give it a go, you know. Well, Sean, thank you very much. I'm going to turn to something else now and over to my colleague, Josh Habakin, who this week caught up with Gareth Smith, CEO of Hilton Smythe Group. Josh, over to you. Yes, thank you very much, Graham. Today, I'm very pleased to be joined by Gareth Smith from Hilton Smythe. Uh, Gareth, can you tell us a little bit about what Hilton Smythe does, please? 
Yeah, sure. So um, we basically help companies buy, sell, and grow through, uh, so through mergers and acquisitions, um, advisory, and finance brokerage. In the last few months, interest rates have been rising. It looks like there's another one um, on the on the cards very soon. And um, the other thing that's worth noting is that mortgage rates have increased as a consequence. What kind of impact has that had on finance arrangements for businesses? Yeah, I mean, it, I suppose the obvious impact initially is that, that obviously borrowing costs have increased um, substantially, really, um, particularly for business owners. Um, but obviously, high street lenders, as a result of that, have become a little bit more risk averse, I'd say. Um, and some lenders have even pulled products from the market altogether, which mm, you know, saw that you, over the last weekend. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's crackers. I mean, you know, you've got companies that have even gone as far as, yeah, we, we've approved the, the loan and then we're going to complete on a, on a, say, a, a property purchase or a business purchase, whatever it might be. And they've just whipped the, 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 you know, whipped it away from them. So, yeah, not great in that respect. But I think funding to acquire is, is arguably a good investment um, in terms of debt financing, uh, provided the returns are suitable. So, um, you know, you might be paying five, six, nine percent interest. But if you buy in the business or invest in the business where the returns are 15, 20, 25 percent, well, I suppose it's all relative. OK, well, if we talk about that, uh, that kind of market and, you know, things being relative, how does the market look in terms of corporate businesses? You know, what's going well? Yeah, so I think generally deals in in what we term the small cap. So typically, you know, up to sort of the 50 million mark um, are generally stable. Um, and I think there's lots of money actually in, in the market from private equity, venture capital houses um, for the right investment. The flip side of that is that we're seeing a slight reduction in not necessarily volume, because volume was up 5% last year, for instance, on, on, on the year before. Um, it's more around the value of companies, which as you get interest rates increasing, what you tend to find with investors, even where they've got cash, is that they want a better return on investment um, because obviously they could put it in the bank, they could buy gilts mm. and, and get a, a solid return. So you end up with, with them paying a little bit less for companies which they might, you know, they might have paid a bit more for it, say, 12 months ago, whatever it might be. So, yeah, generally it's good volume, stable, values coming down a little bit, but not overly concerning, to be honest. Okay, now that was interesting that you're talking about the buyers. From the seller's perspective, are they getting the prices that, that they wanted? Yeah, so again, it, you know, you are seeing a slight reduction in that. Um, so it's always the, the age-old problem. The seller wants to sell for as much as possible buyer wants to buy for as little as possible and it's really finding that middle ground which i guess is really our job that's what we do you know it's how can we get the best deal for for our clients which is a seller um and, and understanding the buyer's um rationale behind it as well to to, to reach a, a compromise so yeah it, it, we are seeing a little bit of reduction in value unfortunately but we'll expect strong demand up until probably the general election. We start to see potential capital gains, tax changes at a general election. Mm -hmm. and, and so you tend to see that activity as we're approaching that period tends to just, you know, it tends to slow down a little bit, which, which is a natural thing to happen, I think, around that time. Okay. So you talked about politics there, you know, that that's a hugely national thing, obviously. Um, you are a national business, but you're based in the Northwest. And I guess that kind of gives you a bit of perspective of how does, what's the economic outlook for the Northwest in, you know, in comparison to the UK? 
Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's strong, it's good. Uh, you just have to look around Manchester, for instance, you know, which Manchester, Liverpool, centre of, of the northwest, really, in that respect. There's cranes everywhere, there's stuff going on, it's busy. Um, so general economy is pretty good. In terms of sort of deal activity and financing activity, again, pretty strong. I think there's a, a, a strong sense of investment that wants to come out of London and move up into the northwest, um, which is fantastic for us. So yeah, more than happy with with where we are in the northwest. And I think it's only positive going forwards. Brilliant. Well, I'm glad to hear a bit of positivity out of you, Gareth. So, uh, yeah, thank, thank you very much for your time. I'm going to go back to Graham now, but if anybody on here is looking to buy, sell a business um, or looking for some finance support, Gareth Smith, you want to go to at Hilton Smythe. Thank you very much for your time today. Thanks very much. Thanks to Josh Havoc in there. Join us next week for Northern Business Podcast. Never miss an episode. Like, rate and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts.